and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Josh Blackman, Associate Professor of Law at South Texas College of Law, Houston. We will discuss his article, The Irrepressible Myths of Cooper v. Aaron, which will be published in the Georgetown Law Journal. So welcome to the podcast, Josh. Brian, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine. Um, the paper's fantastic, um, a really interesting kind of Fed Courts piece, but also a really interesting primary source historical article as well. So I think there's 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 a lot to discuss, but but I was thinking that for for listeners who may not be that familiar with Fed courts and sort of in the weeds con law doctrine, could could you talk a little bit about what Cooper v. Aaron was about and what what it was kind of understood to do by kind of conventional wisdom? Sure. Um, everyone knows about Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, the 1954 case decided that segregated public schools were unconstitutional. What most people don't appreciate about Brown was that the case only concerned the public schools in four states, Kansas, Virginia, South Carolina, and Delaware, and also the District of Columbia in a companion case. Um, Also, people don't recognize that Brown didn't actually order those schools to desegregate. Uh, The case was held over free argument in another case called Brown II. And Brown, too, said that those schools, those four schools, should integrate with all deliberate speed. That was a famous quote, all deliberate speed. Uh, But even then, that decision didn't really affect uh, schools in the other 46 states. Um, And the Supreme Court basically said, we'll let the lower courts handle it. Um, That may have seemed like a good idea in 1955, uh, but it didn't work out too well in the long run. Throughout the South, the so-called uh, uh, massive resistance spread. Uh, this was a movement that sought to limit the effect of Brown, and it did so in a very peculiar way. Um, this is a common myth, one of the myths I try to dispel. Uh, the, the, the massive resistance didn't say, we're going to ignore Brown. Um, they didn't need to. Brown didn't apply to, for example, the Little Rock, Arkansas School Board. Um, the Supreme Court's decisions only applied to the parties before them. They make broad constitutional rulings, but it falls to the lower courts to actually implement or localize those judgments. Um, So what happened in Arkansas and Little Rock? A district court ordered integration. Um, There was a lot of unrest in the ground. The governor of Arkansas called out the National Guard to prevent uh, black children from going to school. These are the so-called Little Rock Nine. Um, it, it, it It was a surreal scene. Then President Eisenhower sent in federal troops to uh, escort these students into uh, the building. Um, It it was a remarkable scene in the civil rights movement. Um, At that point, the school board went back to the district court and said, look, we can't do this, right? We can't have this, this, this chaos, this disorder. And he asked, and, and the school board asked for an extension of time to integrate the school. Um, At that point, uh, the judge actually granted an extension, gave them 30 months, which was not expected. In other words, they have 30 more months to keep the school segregated. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed and said, no, 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 you have to integrate right now. And that's how the case got to the Supreme Court, right? The issue presented at the Supreme Court was whether the 30-month extension was consistent with Brown. And that part wasn't that hard. I think the court said, no, you need to integrate now. 30 months is not going to work. But the case in Cooper against Aaron went beyond that. 
Um, the court sought to address the premise of the Arkansas government that, well, since they weren't parties to Brown, they're not bound by the decision. And here's where uh, I jump off course with the Supreme Court. Uh, the court held in a very broad fashion that its decisions, the decisions of the Supreme Court, are in effect the supreme law of the land. Um, and therefore, all public officials, state and federal, who are bound to the Constitution are also bound by the Supreme Court's decisions. Um, this was an, a bold ruling. And in fact, all nine justices signed it. They all agreed to it. Uh, the court tried to make it seem like this was not that controversial, but this had never been done before. No one had ever made such a broad holding. They cited Marbury in other cases, and Marbury doesn't say that. We'll probably talk about that. Um, and they made the ruling. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. What happened after Cooper? It got pretty bleak. Uh, initially, the governor, uh, the Arkansas government, handed over the public schools to a private corporation, which was not bound by the 14th Amendment, <laughs> and they kept them segregated. Then the district court said, no, you can't do that. At that point, <laughs> the government just shut down the school districts. So for about, about two years or so, there were no high schools in Little Rock. They, they just didn't have any schools. The entire public school system was shut down. In Prince Edwards County, Virginia, the schools were shut down for years. Uh, they they made like a they made like a voucher system where they basically paid to go to a private segregated school. So after the Supreme Court had this, you know, this this, this I am you know Spartacus moment, right, where they said you you obey me, uh, everyone basically ignored it, um, and no one cared, uh, which I think reaffirms how bold that ruling of the Supreme Court was. That that's the general frame of Cooper v. Aaron, a case that not all comma books even mention. They just stop at Brown, which I think is a mistake. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and one thing I thought was was interesting and I think helpful for legal scholars about the way you frame the paper is the title itself is sort of a reference to a tradition in historical con law scholarship, this idea of the irrepressible myth. I was wondering if you'd talk about that framing a little bit and the kind of previous scholars who've used it and how you think your paper fits into that frame. Oh, sure. Um, so I didn't make up that frame of the title. The most famous one is a paper by John Hart Ely, the, the, the great scholar. Um, and he wrote a paper called The Irrepressible Myth of Erie. And that's a case you can talk about for hours, right? That's the Erie Railroads versus Tompkins case. Uh, and he argues that the widely accepted view of Erie um, wasn't exactly correct, that its interpretation of the Constitution and the Rules Enabling Act um, wasn't exactly right. And very often, these sorts of chestnut cases that are in every book, they develop almost a mythology of people think they say one thing and they actually say something else. And they think the case was based on something was actually based on something else. Uh, Michael Stokes Paulson wrote another great piece about the irrepressible myth of Marbury versus Madison. And he nukes a lot of the arguments that, that, that John Marshall used. I think it's... Um, he persuaded me a bit. And there are a few others. Uh, so I didn't make up this frame, but I approached uh, Cooper from a, you know, from a ground level approach. I, I went back, I read the lower court opinions, I read all the trial opinions, and I traced it step by step. I mean, most people, when they think of Cooper, they think that Eisenhower sent in the troops after Arkansas ignored the Supreme Court. That's what I thought. I, that's what I thought the case was. And it was actually the opposite. Ike sent in the federal troop before the Supreme Court even touched the case, right? By the time it got to the Supreme Court, everything had already happened. Like the, the entire conflict was over. Mm. Uh, so we have this mythology of the Supreme Court saving 
uh, Brown and, and fighting for it. And really, it was President Eisenhower who dispatched the 101st Airborne Paratroopers, my goodness, to Arkansas. That's what got the kids into school. It wasn't Earl Warren. Right, right, right. And and, and in your paper, you distinguish between um, judicial supremacy and judi- judicial universality. And, and I think that 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 distinction is really important to understanding what you're getting about getting at about the sort of mythology of what the court accomplished and what a Supreme Court ruling in general means. I wonder if you could flesh out that distinction a little bit for listeners. Sure. Um, there's a concept that is often ascribed to John Marshall, the idea of uh, judicial supremacy. That is when the Supreme Court makes a decision at the Supreme Court, I'm sorry, makes a decision at the Supreme Court, that's the final word, right? That a president can't tell the Supreme Court, no, I disagree. Um, Mar- Marshall didn't actually say that. I think it's one of the myths of Marbury. I think Marshall said that each department of government has a role in interpreting the Constitution. But it's commonly understood that the Supreme Court gets to have the final word in the Constitution. Okay, I'm not going to fight that battle today. Maybe I'll fight another time. Um, you know that that, that that battle's been fought many times. It's not, I'm not going to win it, but it's, it's a good fight. Um, I describe a different concept, not judicial supremacy, uh, but judicial universality. And what I mean by that is that the Supreme Court's decisions operate like those of any other court. There's a plaintiff, there's a defendant. The case goes to a judgment. That judgment binds the plaintiff and the defendant. It doesn't bind third party Joe Smith. Right. If if Josh sues Brian and we have a judgment and then, you know, Bill engages in the exact same conduct that Brian did, Bill's not bound by the judgment. There's no estoppel. There's no there's no preclusive effect. Um, Cooper inverted that usual frame. Cooper suggested that when Brown was decided, even though the case involved only four states, everyone was bound. The entire United States was bound by that decision immediately because itself the decision was the supreme law of the land. And to disregard Brown was to disregard the Constitution itself. And and I think there's no basis to make this sort of uh, broad proclamation of universal effect of a judgment. And just this is different than a nationwide injunction. I'll I'll just mention that because people often ask about it. A nationwide injunction Mm -hmm. is binding, um, you know, the government officials throughout the country, right, wherever they're found, not just in the District of Texas or wherever the lawsuit was filed. This is the Supreme Court saying we can bind not just everyone in the government, but all parties, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, whatever government you're in. And what I, what I try to show in this paper is that this concept of universality was novel. And the justices kind of recognized that they were treading on thin ice and that they were doing some new stuff that hadn't been done before. And they sort of downplayed that because they didn't want to have like a, a weak front. They wanted to have a strong united front on segregation. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things that was really interesting about what you did in the paper was sort of tracking the development of Brennan's opinion in the case and sort of the comments from the other judges as this, the court sort of seems to sort of coalesce around a certain approach to projecting its uh, its you know its attempt to exercise this this kind of power. I, I wonder if you could walk us through like what you see as the most salient elements of that. Sort of how did the opinion develop over time and 
kind of wind up where it did? Was it a sort of a, a thing that was inevitable or, you know, was there the possibility it could have gone a different direction? Um, the actual Supreme Court decision was written quickly, very quickly. I think about eight or 10 days or so. Um, and usually in the Supreme Court, when an opinion comes together that quickly, it's very bad and very fractured. So I think of a case like Youngstown, Sheet and Tube Company v. Sawyer, right? There were like seven, six or seven opinions, or maybe think of a Bush v. Gore, right? Which I, I think there were like six opinions in that case. Um, Earl Warren, though, had a different approach. He basically tasked William Brennan, who I think was then either the second most junior justice, to be the lead draftsman. And he said, you draft an opinion. And um, I obtained copies of all the papers of eight of the nine justices at the time. Uh, Justice Whitaker, uh, his papers, believe it or not, are not yet available. They're going to be available in a couple of years at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. I don't know how it's even possible. The guy's been off the court for 50 years. Um, but he he had nothing to say about the case. I saw nothing from him. He's a fairly you know inconsequential player here. So I had the other eight justices, and I went through each draft that was circulated and each uh, round of edits. Now, some justices typed up their edits. I was grateful for those. Other justices just scriggled in the margin, and 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 I was less grateful for those. So I, I hope I didn't misread any of the comments. I think I got them as as well as I could. Um, and I traced from draft to draft, um, what changes were made with respect to this concept of universality. And what I found is that in the earlier drafts, Justice Brennan was a lot more, um, you know, he was a lot more willing to rely on a case like Marbury, um, which everyone knows. But in each successive draft, the court sort of dials back how much he can rely on these precedents. And I think that this recognizes an acknowledgement that the court had never before proclaimed this power and that they weren't comfortable in saying, oh yeah, we're just, we're just doing what Marbury said. Um, they also dial back the reliance on the supremacy clause. There were some drafts that suggested that the supremacy clause by itself, the text, makes the Supreme Court decision the Supreme Law of the land. And I, I don't think that's quite right. Mm-hmm. So they kept dialing it back. And then by the time you got to um, the final draft, I think it was like draft six or seven, you know, the claim was fairly um, soft, right? They said, we have these precedents, but here's what we said in Brown. You guys are bound by it. Um, and they made this claim. And one other point that's important to stress, they never really came back to it. The court cited supremacy over and over again, like in Casey or in Bernie against Flores or these sort of, you know, bold cases about the judicial power. But they really haven't come back to the idea that when we say something, you're all bound by it. And indeed, their practice suggests just the opposite, that after a court's decided, after the case is, I'm sorry, after the court decides a case, the court will often GVR, that is grant, vacate, and remand another case, right? The fact that they remanded another case means that the lower court has to then implement consistent with the SCOTUS judgment. That's how things work. You know, mm-hmm. after Obergefell, I'll use that for, as, a, as a recent example. Obergefell involved the laws in Michigan, Ohio, Tennessee, and Kentucky, the Sixth Circuit, where uh, I used to clerk in, where you, where you, where you live. Um, after Obergefell was decided, we had laws in Texas and Mississippi that were st- or Louisiana that were still in the books. And the Fifth Circuit had to enter in a judgment saying, okay, based on Obergefell, we're ruling these Texas and Louisiana laws unconstitutional. That additional step was necessary precisely because the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision did not bind everyone. 
And if you think this is a joke, mm. there were there were litigation about attorneys' fees, right? Where some of the state, I think it was Kansas, said, "Oh, you know, after Bergefell has decided, we shouldn't have to pay more fees because it resolved the gay marriage issue." I think the the gay marriage group said, "No, no, 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 no. We're getting our fees. We had to litigate post Bergefell. You're going to pay us for it." So you actually have like courts saying, "Yes, the litigation after the Supreme Court decides is worthwhile and necessary, and you get your fees for it." So this is not you know Josh making stuff up. Mm. You have the Inadvertently, you have these you know, pro-LGBT groups, you know, advancing the argument that a Burgerfall was not self-executing. Mm, mm. And, and and one of the things I thought was really interesting in your paper was sort of how you trace the second Justice Harlan's initial objections to the opinion and his kind of the gradual gradual softening of you know of his own take and sort of him ultimately joining the opinion. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like sort of what was he objecting to and why, and do you have any sense of like why he ultimately changed his mind? Well, Justice Harlan, of course, it's the grandson of the great Kentuckian, right? John Marshall Harlan, the first um, was a bit of an idiosyncratic justice. And uh, at some point in the process, he started drafting an unsolicited and alternate version of the opinion for the court. And he showed it to some of his closer conservative friends, but then he circulated this letter. Uh, he says, uh, I am venturing to enclose a proposed substitute for pages 10 through 15. I think you will find that I've omitted nothing of a substance. My problem is basically one of organization. Um, and his opinion, I think, was, was, was much broader. His opinion turned almost entirely on the supremacy clause itself, not so much on precedent. Um, and it didn't, it didn't go well. Uh, at conference, um, you know, the justice said, we don't like your draft. I prefer the original. And at that point, um, Harlan basically withdrew it. Um, the The other <laughs> possible f- uh, 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 forking, if I may, was Frankfurter, who, you know, no one really liked him. And Frankfurter wanted to write this concurring opinion about um, – how the lawyers of the South must take a unique role to help the courts. It, it was bizarre. And uh, a couple other justices said they would write a dissent from his concurrence, if that's even a thing. I don't think that's a thing, but they would, they would dissent from his concurrence. So Frank versus okay, he agreed to release his separate opinion like a couple weeks later. At that point, no one cared anymore. So it's in the reporter. You can find it, but it's dated mm-hmm. differently, which is a strange thing. So th- there were a lot of personalities. Mm-hmm. I give Brennan and Warren credit. Uh, they they knew how to hold together had to hold together a ship that was they they knew that very well, and they held together this unanimous judgment that all nine signed on in like a week. Uh, it, it's really remarkable. I mean, think about it, no computers, right? Every edit you have to typeset from scratch. I mean, this was an around the clock effort. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, and you've you've talked about this a little bit already, but I think it's worth returning to because it seems like a really key point in the paper where you have this line when you say the Supreme Court is still a court, right? And I think that's really a, kind of a powerful and interesting observation. And, and I wonder if you could kind of just dwell for a minute on like what that means in the concept of thinking about what you refer to as judicial universality and like how that ought to affect the way we think about Supreme Court rulings and other court rulings in relation to particular disputes and to sort of like the power of the government more generally. Sure. So I'll I'll read the sentence you're referring to. I said, uh, the Supreme Court is still a court that follows the usual rule of courts. Its, Its precedents are persuasive to everyone. 
its judgments are only binding the named parties, and it ultimately lacks the power to enforce those judgments. Um, we, we learn in Federal 78 that the courts are the least dangerous branch. They don't have the power of the sword to enforce, the power of the purse to fund. Um, the court's entire uh, existence depends on the power of its judgments, as Hamilton said. But a judgment only exists in the context of a court, which is plaintiff versus defendant. Um, the Supreme Court's no different, right? There's never been an act of Congress saying that a Supreme Court decision binds everyone nationwide. And this is only a power the court asserted, or I should say, aggrandized unto itself. Um, the reason why I, I write this paper is to maybe knock the Supreme Court down a couple pegs uh, to make them recognize that you are not that powerful, that you issue this opinion in Brown that everyone ignored. And then you issue this opinion in Cooper that everyone ignored. So don't pretend that your judgments bind everyone. The Supreme Court's opinions matter to the extent to which people accept them as binding precedent on them, not as a general rule for the world. Uh, you know, I, I think, Brian, in our in our lifetimes, if the court gets a little too conservative, I think we'll see the Southern resistance reverse. We'll see, you know, the green resistance, maybe, you know, where uh, New York or California decides, all right. You told our EPA not to do this. We'll let this other agency take care of this problem. I think mm. we'll see the exact same playbook. And look, you're in Kentucky. This is not new. This is Lincoln, right? Mm. Lincoln argued about Dred Scott. Think about Dred Scott for a minute. Who are the parties? Dred Scott and Sanford. Two people. Lincoln said the federal government was not a party to that case. They didn't even file a brief in that. Can you imagine deciding Dred Scott without a without asking the government to file a brief? Can you imagine declaring the, the Missouri Compromise unconstitutional? Lincoln basically said, we weren't a part to that case. We're not bound by it. Mm. Congress never said, okay, let's, let's just let's just figure about the Missouri Compromise. They, they followed it through. So this case, I think, illustrates with precision why the Supreme Court should be careful to limit its decisions to those before it. Now, you say, well, Josh, if then they don't take 100 different cases to desegregate schools. That's what it took. Mm -hmm. Right. That's actually what it took. There are still schools districts in the U.S. today, 2019, under consent decrees. Still, mm. 2019. Uh, so I'm my point is okay. If it takes a hundred separate cases, that's what's going to take. Uh, it, it would be great if the Supreme Court makes a decision because say, you know what, let's just pack it and go home. Uh, but people aren't that. People are more stubborn. Yeah, and, and you know, and I thought that comparison to the kind of political circumstances surrounding Dred Scott was actually really powerful because in a way it's almost like Cooper v Aaron was the like the evil twin as it were of <laughs> Dred Scott I like when that. it when, when it comes to the 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 executive branch's response I wonder if you could flesh out that comparison a little bit cuz I I found it really powerful and actually really helpful for understanding why the point you're making is so important. Oh, sure. Um, so let's go back to Dred Scott for a minute, right? This was a case where Dred Scott, who was a slave, um, sued Sanford, who was the, the owner, um, for emancipation. And he argued that by virtue of his travels to the free territories, he had been emancipated. Um, the case was filed uh, in district court on diversity jurisdiction grounds. Uh the, the the major holding of Dred Scott was that because Scott wasn't a citizen, he can't invoke diversity jurisdiction, which is, you know, might seem like a, a boring holding, but that was the basic holding of the case. Then Tawny went a step further and said, by the way, it would violate the Fifth Amendment, the due process clause for 
the federal government to deprive people of slaves. Therefore, Congress can't prohibit slavery in the territories, and the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional. I mean, it, you know, it, it was an insane holding. Um, but Abraham Lincoln, who was then a, a lawyer from Illinois, rose to prominence opposing Dred Scott. And he articulated a specific way of opposing. He said, look, we can't ignore the Supreme Court, but we should limit the judgments of the Supreme Court to the parties before it. That is Dred Scott and Mr. Sanford. That's it. Those two people. Um, the federal government was not a party to Dred Scott. They had no opportunity to intervene. They weren't sued. So why should they be bound? Um, so I like that evil twin approach, right? The segregationists, the massive resistance, they picked up Lincoln's playbook. And they said, we'll do the same thing. If a court issues an injunction against the National Guard, we'll bring out the police department, right? If they have an injunction against the mayor, we'll bring out the county commissioner to segregate. And eventually, they'll get a judgment against everyone. You know, I compare it to the carnival game Whack-A-Mole, which you may have played, where you, you hit one of these <laughs> little balls that pops out, another one pops up. You have to keep hitting, and they keep popping out. You can't stop them. And I think this is a useful metaphor to understand the case. Um, my students have a lot of difficulty with this because mm. when I teach Dred Scott – they love Lincoln for saying, you know, up yours, Tawny, right? They love mm -hmm. that. But then when I flip it to Cooper, like, whoa. And they have this cognitive dissonance. Um, it, it, it's very, it's a very hard thing. I, you know, I, I do this every year deliberately where I do Tawny, Dred Scott, Lincoln, and then Cooper V. Aaron uh, with, with Orville Faubus, who was the governor of Arkansas. And it, it makes students uncomfortable because it, yeah. it, it's a principle that cuts either way. Yeah. Wow. I mean, well, I got to say your, your Conlock class sounds amazing and idiosyncratic indeed. I try. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I, and I got to say, I mean, it, it really reminds me of, of Andrew Jackson to some extent as well, you know, and sort of his estimation of the relative power, political power of the court versus the executive branch. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think, I think you have to look at the unique role of the executive here. Um, and I can't say enough about Eisenhower. Um, there's a little bit of a tangent, but Eisenhower didn't agree with Brown at all. He, he thought it was wrong. He thought the Supreme Court should have no role in, in education policy. In fact, there are a couple books which suggest that he and Earl Warren had frosty encounters at various public appearances. Uh, after the Brown case, um, and, and you know, we all we all know that Eisenhower appointed Brennan. He regretted that one as well. Um, but Eisenhower recognized the importance of people following court orders. And after the um, the the district court ordered integration, and then the governor brought out the National Guard, Ike sent a telegram to the governor of Arkansas and said, "You need to follow this district court order." He didn't say Supreme Court. He said district court, right? Mm -hmm. And it's rare that people even notice that, but I did. I was actually at uh, Central High School in Little Rock. You can take a tour. It's, it's still an active high school, but it's a national park. It felt like a creep. I was touring this high school, um, at least walking outside during class time. And I looked at the telegram. The telegram said, follow the district court. I'm like, whoa, like I, that, that, that jumped out. It wasn't SCOTUS. Um, and then when Faubus basically – brought out the National Guard troops, Ike said, okay, you didn't do what I said. I'm going to send in the 101st Airborne. So I, Hamilton was right. There is no power of the sword for the courts. They can't enforce their judgments, and they look feeble if they try. 
this is like another another famous case with Justice Tawney, uh, ex parte Merriman, where he basically tried to hold the the commander of the Union Army at Fort McHenry, Cadwalder, in contempt. He, he sent his marshal out to arrest the Union Army general. I mean, give me give me a break, right? <laughs> you, know, you, you can't do this. You're not gonna you're not gonna win. Um, uh, so executive power from the from the branch of forces stuff is very significant. Yeah, yeah, no, and 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 I wonder, like, could you reflect more more broadly, perhaps, on sort of what this tells us from kind of a a Fed courts con law perspective about the relative power of the courts and sort of like what it means for them to make a decision. I mean, you know, clearly. I think this idea of judicial universality is tenuous at best, right? How should like other branches of government think about the rulings of the Supreme Court and sort of like as a practical political matter, what what force do and should they have? You know, I I'll take a step back here. I think given the way our polity has developed over the last 200 years. Um, I'm okay with the Supreme Court being the final word on things. I don't think that's the original design, but as a practical matter, I think that's probably where we are. Um, I do think that uh, members of Congress should think carefully about the Constitution when passing on bills. I think you know police officers should think about the Fourth Amendment when they're making a stop, but I, I'm not, not quite, but I more or less come to grips with the Supreme Court having the final word. I mean, it's probably wrong, but it's where we are. But, yeah, I have to be realistic. But um, I don't think that the universality concept should be disregarded. And I think more people should think about these things carefully because it, it, it highlights how litigation functions, right? When a Burgerfell was decided we didn't have gay marriage coast to coast, took a couple more days. And people are saying, oh, my God, Texas, Louisiana, follow the Supreme Court. You're ignoring the Supreme Court. No, that's not accurate. They weren't ignoring the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said nothing to them. So mm. at least recognizing this concept teaches that the Supreme Court isn't omnipotent and all-powerful, that they do have to function like any other court. And if nothing else, I, if people understand that part, I'll be happy. Okay. So, so Josh, in, in closing, you said earlier in this conversation that you know a lot of casebooks don't include Cooper v. Aaron and a lot of con law teachers don't necessarily – really teach Cooper v. Aaron. Um, in a nutshell, you know, do you think they should? And if so, why? Uh, they should do three things. First, teach Brown, then teach Brown too, so students recognize that it wasn't an instant process. And then they should teach about the mass resistance with Cooper v. Aaron. Um, this tells... Um, the story of how integration actually occurred. I think far too many law students have a SCOTUS centric view of the constitution where, you know, the Supreme court says something and by God, that's it. Everything's good. Everything's rosy. And it's not right. It, it takes a lot of effort to integrate schools in 40, you know, 20, 20 something States. It was almost half the union had segregated schools. And I think it gives students a false sense of how powerful the court is. Uh, you know, maybe my class is idiosyncratic. I tell my students, Supreme Court's pretty weak. There are very few of its decisions that had significance that didn't have public buy-in, right? 
mm-hmm. if you think of a burger fell by that point, I think almost half the states, fifty percent, were in favor of gay marriage. I and mean, at that point, it was a runaway train. You know, with with integration, it wasn't. You didn't have that sort of buy-in, and so it took 20, 30, 40 years to work. When the Supreme Court mm-hmm. tries to do things um, that don't have buy-in, you're not getting the uh, you're not getting that effect. I think people should recognize that merely writing an opinion doesn't work. I mean, most Supreme Court decisions are fairly tame. You know, Heller, right? People complain about Heller. Forty-nine out of fifty states had a constitutional, a state constitutional right to have a handgun in the home. There wasn't much of a change. Right. Maybe Bush v. Gore, which was sort of sui generis unto itself, but most Supreme Court decisions, you can think of the death penalty cases where they sort of ratcheted back. Okay, never mind. It's not unconstitutional. They went too far. You know, maybe Roe went perhaps too far and you see the backlash 30 years later. The Supreme Court's a court and, you know, their their opinions don't always go where they where they think they're going to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, Josh, thanks so much. I mean, this has been a really illuminating conversation. And, you know, I learned a lot about Cooper V. Aaron from reading your paper and from talking to you about it. And I hope listeners will will check out the paper as well. Thank you. And everyone should go read Brian's article on the uh on the Erie case, which is fascinating. It changed the way I look at the the facts of that case. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, Josh. We've tripled educational aid to cities and towns, and because inflation threatens the ability of many parents to put their kids through college, we've kept state college tuitions low, and we've increased scholarships and low-interest loans. We've built a new University of Massachusetts in Boston, four new colleges, a new medical school, in all 30,000 new openings for students. And to keep schools in touch with real student needs, We've put students on all the state college boards of trustees. 